our view of justice is about me, that I deserve to get the maximum of whatever. No one should have more than me. That's oftentimes what shapes our view of justice. The reality is, is that we all have this deep ingrained sense of what is right, of what is fair, and what is just. And whenever that deep sense of what is just is challenged, we get angry. And rightly so. When there's injustice, it is right to be angry. God himself is angry whenever he sees injustice. But right now, particularly in our culture right now, there is so much anger and division and just nastiness in in our public discourse over differing views of justice. Have you thought about that? You know, if you're on Facebook, you know, Facebook now is just rants from different political views, right? And so whatever your view is, this is interesting because usually we surround ourselves with friends that tend to agree with our particular political views. And and then also Facebook is like inside your brain and it knows how you think. And so it's like targeting you with certain ads and things. So you're, you're only like in your own echo chamber of hearing things that reinforce your own view of justice, And so what happens is that we get more and more ingrained in our sense of justice and more and more angry at all competing views of justice. But the interesting thing is that there's so many competing views of justice. It's what political views are. They're a sense of this is what is right. This is how the world ought to be. And yet more than ever, we're in this sense of just anger at what we feel like are unjust ways of being in the world. It's interesting, uh, sometimes I go... When I'm uh, in Chattanooga, I'll go to a coffee shop in Chattanooga called The Spot, and I'll sit there and I'll do some work. And I've noticed that there's this group of people, they're kind of older folks that come together, and they seem to know each other and be something of friends, but they come together for coffee and they meet in there, and almost immediately whenever they meet, they begin arguing about politics. And it's so distracting. I mean, I can't like, you can't, they, they take over the whole room, they're loud. Sometimes I think a fight's about to break out in there. You know, these, I'm going to see these old people rolling around on the floor in a fight. You know, and, and the thing about it is neither of them are listening to the others. They're not even listening. They're just, they're just arguing their point of view. I was talking to a friend of mine who is actually uh, serves in, in government here in Dade County. Uh, and he was telling me just this, uh, I think it was just this past week, they came out, the board that he's a part of, came out with a position of something they wanted to put on the ballot. And he was immediately attacked on Facebook. There's this Dade County chat room called the Village Idiot. Some of you might be on there. Ooh, it's rough in there. But he was raked over the coals just by saying, I think we ought to vote on this. And it was just amazing for me to hear all these people saying things that we would not say to someone's face, but yet how angry people were getting at just these different kind of views of what does it mean to live in a just and good society. Here's a part of the problem that we have. Our views of justice are more often than not formed not by God's values, not by Scripture, not by the kingdom of God, but rather by the world the people that we associate with, the different news channels that we're always watching. Our sense, our values and our sense of justice tends to be more 
formed by the world than by God's word. But here's what we see as we come to our passage today. Apprenticing ourselves to Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. You become an an apprentice of Jesus and you're watching Jesus and you're learning from Jesus. But as we apprentice ourselves to Jesus, we are formed in His upside-down, otherworldly kingdom of God. We begin to take His values upon ourselves, and those begin to define for us what justice looks like. And that's a part of what's happening in our passage as we look at it today. So let's jump into this passage. We're working our way through the book of Luke. We're watching Jesus. We're learning from Jesus This particular passage is an important one. It's coming off of last week where Jesus was tempted in the wilderness and he succeeded. And now here is him launching his ministry. And now this is, I love in this just scene how Luke, is he just, he's a master storyteller. How he slows down the action and you just feel the weight of what is happening in this scene. As Luke tells us, Jesus is in his hometown of Nazareth. He walks into the synagogue on the Sabbath. This was, as Luke says here, this was his regular custom. He was always going to worship at the synagogue. The synagogue was like the church of that day, where they would come together and there would be a reading of Scripture and many readings of Scripture. Different people would read Scripture. They would, a rabbi would be teaching on the law. There would be prayers, much like what we do in here. And Jesus, as was his custom, is in the synagogue. And there was a moment in synagogue worship where someone in the congregation would be called on to read from the prophets. And Jesus steps up, the scroll of Isaiah is handed to him, and he rolls, unrolls it, and he finds in there Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And he reads what we see here. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And He continues to go on throughout those two verses of Isaiah. Now that was an incredibly important passage. One that everyone in the synagogue would have memorized as children. It's a huge passage talking about the coming of the Messiah and the kingdom that He would usher in and how it would be a kingdom of justice that would turn upside down all of the oppressive power structures of the world. And yet here is Jesus reading that passage. He hands the scroll back and he sits down. And Luke tells us everyone in the synagogue is fixed upon him in that moment. There's some sense in there that something is happening in this moment. And then Jesus drops the mic. And he says, today, this passage is fulfilled in your hearing. Imagine that. I mean, this, these words were written 800 plus years before this moment. And the people of God had been waiting on all of this time for the moment in which these words would be fulfilled. And yet Jesus in this moment says, today this is fulfilled. I am bringing all of this to fulfillment with my ministry. A huge moment. And we read immediately after that that everyone is like just taken by Jesus. Do you notice again what he says? Verse 22, all spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words that come from him. Someone said, isn't this Joseph's son? There's a buzz in the room. They're like, hey, wow, this is a local boy. He's from Dade County. 
Who would have thought out of Dade County the Messiah would come? Right? They're starting to get excited. They're starting to get a little proud. He's one of our own. He's going to do big things. He's going to come. He's going to, he's going to lift it all up. He's going to make it happen. They begin to get excited. At this point, and the sermon continues, but at this point in the sermon, he's hitting on all cylinders. He's got the crowd in his hands. It's working. But there's something interesting that turns at that point in the sermon. Jesus didn't stop there. If he just started that, stopped there, hey, you killed it in that sermon, Jesus. But he didn't stop there. Did you notice the reaction at the end of his sermon? Look again what it says here at the very end. Verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, took him to the brow of the hill in which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. Now listen, I've had some sermons where I felt like it didn't get past the first row before. And thankfully, you people are very gracious. I mean, when I blow it, you come up and you're like, hey, that's great. That was awesome. I mean, I've never had anybody not only not say, that. Hey, listen, that was a terrible sermon. I've never had anybody run me out of town. I've never been run out of the building. I've never been taken to a cliff and threatened to be dropped to my death. How do you mess up a sermon that bad? Right? He's blown it here. What happened? What did he say to make them go from a place of being like, whoa, to like, let's kill him? Isn't that shocking? What could he have possibly done? And here's what Jesus did. When he applied that passage, he flipped the script on everybody that was in the room. Listen, Jesus wasn't talking here to liberals, okay? He wasn't, he wasn't talking to, to outsiders and, and bad people. He wasn't talking to Muslims here. He wasn't talking to people who are hostile to God. He's talking to conservatives here. He's talking to religious people. Everybody in the synagogue had on a red hat that said, Mega, make Israel great again, okay? These are passionate about Israel. They're passionate about the church. So why this kind of reaction? Because Jesus flips the script. Their whole understanding about the kingdom of God. All that they understood about what this passage meant and what the the Messiah would come to do. All those expectations. Jesus in one swoop turns it all upside down. And when their sense of justice, of what's right in the world, is so challenged, they're ready to kill him. They're angry. They're furious. They turn into a mob. So how does Jesus flip the script? It's, it's interesting here how he does it. He, 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 he tells two stories and he uses like a little proverb here. Now look again. Let's just look at what, exactly what he says. Verse 23. Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. And then he goes on to tell two stories of two of the greatest Old Testament prophets, Elijah and Elisha. That little proverb he quotes, physician, heal yourself. Now, it's hard to kind of understand. It's a common kind of proverb in this day. What does he mean by that? Well, it was a way of saying, listen, take care of your own. Hey, doc, 
Don't be just always out there helping people outside of your own family, outside of your own people. Take care of your own. Come on, let the goodness come in here. Do here in Nazareth what you've done in Capernaum. And then he tells these two stories of the prophets where actually they are sent not to Israel, not to God's people in a, place, in a time of great need, but they're sent to those who are outside the people of God, to a widow in Sidon. That's outside of Israel. This is a foreigner and a widow, no less, someone who has no social standing. And yet that's who Elijah goes to to take his ministry. And the name in the Syrian. Do you know what Israelites thought of Syrians? Syrians were brutal people. You talk about an outsider. You talk about a hated. He was a general, no less. And yet, Elisha's ministry goes to Naaman. Why does Jesus quote those two? Because he's challenging their expectations of the kingdom of God. Their whole understanding about who Messiah was coming to and who all of these promises were for is that it was for them. The insiders, the people who had it all together, the people who were religious, the people who who had done everything right. That's the people who get God's favor. The religious people. And Jesus is challenging that and saying, you don't understand the kingdom of God. Because God's favor is not just for the put together. God's favor and his heart is to go to the margins. It's to go to the broken. It's to go to the forgotten. It's to go to the vulnerable. It's it's to go to the sinner. It's to go to the people that you cannot imagine. God could never show favor to them. And yet Jesus is saying that is exactly the nature of the kingdom of God. To go to the helpless. To go to the broken. That is the heart of it. So why this incredible reaction? Because Jesus goes at the core of their understanding of what's right. And he says, you don't get it. And you think you do. And you're convinced you do. And yet the kingdom of God is for the outsider. And for the broken. And we get that reaction. So the question is, how does, God, how does Jesus understand his mission? How does he teach? What does he teach His mission is about. And as we look at this passage, I think it really challenges maybe some of our own assumptions about what Jesus came to do. Maybe it expands them in some really critical ways. Jesus uses this verse, this passage from Isaiah to say, this is what I'm about. So what are we to learn from this? Look at verse 18 again. Jesus reads these, this, this passage from Isaiah, he says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. There's a number of elements in there where he, he's saying, I, My mission is to preach. Now, to preach means to announce, to proclaim that something is here, or that something is coming, or that something has happened. And that's at the heart of his mission. Now, whenever we see that, Good news, that ought to make us think about a very important word. Kids, what does good news mean? What is the word for good news? Gospel, thank you. It's very important for us as a church because we believe is really the essence of the Bible. Gospel. Now, as we think about the gospel, what we often think, especially in our culture here in the Bible Belt, is we think of the, of the gospel as something that refers 
to the afterlife, something that is only spiritual. We think of the basic information that you need to know about what Jesus did in order to be saved, right? What I need to do, the prayer I need to pray, whatever I need to do in order that I might go to heaven after I die. But it's primarily, it's primarily about afterlife, and it's primarily about me individually and privately. And that's how we tend to view the gospel. And let me just say, right off the bat, that is certainly in the essence of the gospel. It is certainly about how I am reconciled to God through the work of Jesus alone. It is certainly how I get brought into his kingdom and I will share in that kingdom with him for all of eternity. So it means that. It doesn't not mean that. The problem is for us is that it just means so much more for Jesus. This is the gospel of the kingdom. If you look at Jesus' early ministry, Mark makes this very clear. As he begins his ministry, it says he went about preaching and announcing the gospel of the kingdom. You see, the good news is that God's kingdom is coming into the world. The kingdom of God is a, the central theme of the whole Bible. Now, that's a big thing to say. You can sum up the whole Bible in the kingdom of God. But that is the story of the Bible of God's bringing His kingdom into the world. And over and over and over as we see the picture of the kingdom of God, what it means is not just that sinners get brought into relationship with God. It certainly means that. But it also means the transformation of all that is broken in this world. It means the great reversal of all that is turned upside down in the world. It means that all that those of who are, who are oppressed and brought low will be lifted up, and all of those who are, who are proud and who have, who have uh, beat others down and held others down, they will be brought low, and that God will put everything to rights in the world. It is incredibly physical. It involves all of creation and all of culture and all of society. It is physical. It is all-encompassing. So, so often we reduce the kingdom of God to just mean me individually. But whenever we come and we look at the whole scripture, we begin to see that the kingdom of God is inherently social. It involves our relationships and involves all things in humanity. And we see that even in just these very words here. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Now, the question is, why is the gospel good news for the poor? Why is that good news that the kingdom of God is coming? Now, the poor here and the poor in Scripture doesn't just mean not having money, not having material things. It certainly includes that. But the category of poverty, of poor, includes having no status. It's anyone that has no social status, no one, someone that has no uh, social power, that has no ability to protect themselves or advance themselves. It's a huge category. It would refer to all of those who are at the margins of society, those who who don't seem to matter, those who people dismiss, those who people take advantage of, the vulnerable. All of those kind of people would fall into this category of the poor. And Jesus says, with me, the kingdom coming is good news for the poor, for the broken. For the people that have been beat down and taken advantage of, the good news is that the kingdom of God is here and God is going to bring about reversal for you. He's going to put the whole world to rights. 
Look at the groups of people that are mentioned here just in this passage. We talked about the poor, freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, release the oppressed. What do those people have in common? The, the oppressed, the prisoner, the blind, the handicapped. Now, of course, sometimes we read this only in spiritual terms. The reality is it's both spiritual and physical. It would refer to those who are spiritually blind and physically blind. We see all of this taking place in Jesus' ministry. What do all these groups of people have in common? They don't matter in the world. They don't matter. Right? They're, the, they're the people that are the most vulnerable. The people it's so easy to just dismiss. The people that have no, no say. The people that it's so easy to just overlook and take what they have. And listen, the story of the world is the strong taking what belongs to the poor. That's all of human history. And yet God's kingdom is coming. And all of that will be reversed. You know, this concept of lifting up the poor, lifting up the vulnerable, is what the Bible calls justice. You know, the Hebrew word, and the Hebrew, Hebrew concept is huge. It's called mishpat. It's the Hebrew concept there. The word mishpat is found in the Scriptures in the Old Testament more than 400 times. There's only a couple words like Lord and covenant that occur more than that. It's a huge concept. Now, when we think of justice, we think of paying back a wrong that has been done. And that's certainly an aspect of justice. That's called retributive justice. So it would be like if I steal $5, justice would be I would have to pay back $5 and maybe make restitution for what I've caused, the trouble that I've caused. We would look at that if that takes place and we'd say, that's justice. And it is according to the Bible. But there's a whole other aspect called restorative justice in the Bible that is not just about paying back what's done wrong, but about lifting up the vulnerable. It's about uh, orienting your life and a whole society towards those people who have no power and no agency and are taken advantage of, of lifting them up, of protecting them. That is biblical justice. And in the scriptures, whenever mishpat is used, nine times out of ten, it is that second sense of justice. I'll read a, pass, I'll read a verse for you just to prove it. This is Isaiah 117. Seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. You see all the time in scripture what's called the quartet of the vulnerable. The poor, the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. It's funny, isn't it? The, the immigrant is included in there. Now, why these people? What's so special about them? Well, in that day, those were the most vulnerable people in society. Those were the people that it was so easy to take advantage of. And so God is always talking about and calling on His people to take up their cause. Not just not to do them wrong, but to make your life about their problems, and protecting them, and defending them, and creating a society that defends them. That was to mark the life of Israel, and that is to do justice. You know, the last thing that Jesus reads in this prophet Isaiah is he says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is the, 
the shorthand of referring to the year of Jubilee. In Leviticus chapter 25, it talks about there's this legislation for a year of Jubilee that every 50th year in Israel, all debts would be canceled. Everyone who is in slavery would be released. Everyone who had lost their land, that land would come back to them. The original inheritance would be returned. That was the year of Jubilee. And you see, it was to be a picture of the coming of the kingdom of God. That one day there would be a never-ending jubilee. That God would come to bring in His kingdom. And it would be a lifting up of all of those who've been taken from. It would be a, a great release of everyone who has been held captive. So this is the heart of Jesus' teaching. We'll see this as we go through the book of Luke. That Jesus will teach over and over and over that, listen, life in my kingdom... It's about justice. You want to know the values of my kingdom, says Jesus? The weakest are the greatest in the kingdom of God. It's very upside down in the world. That that in my kingdom, the the greatest virtue is service. Right? It's not how, how much are you served, not how much power do you have, not how beautiful are you, not how popular are you. All those are the things in this world that says, hey, you got it if you got that. And Jesus says, you know, my kingdom's a little bit different. You know, the greatest virtue in my kingdom is to become a servant, to become like a slave. That in my kingdom is the greatest virtue, right? In my kingdom, loving your enemy is the rule. To be a people of never-ending forgiveness To fight evil, not with defending your rights, not with power and with strength, but with loving your enemy. Talk about upside down kind of kingdom. You see, if you are a disciple of Jesus, what we are called to do is to learn the ways of his kingdom and to live out that kingdom, the values of that kingdom that is otherworldly. You talk about sticking out in this world. Walk in the ways of the kingdom of God, and we will stick out. But our calling is to live out our citizenship in a foreign kingdom right here and now as we live in this world. That is our calling. So let's do just a little application here. Pull out your little sermon notes here. If you haven't been following along already. So the question becomes, what does this mean for my life? That's the question. How do I apply this, this sense of the kingdom of God and justice to my life? And I would say, first of all, some of you might be hearing this, you might be saying, you you want me to do justice. Listen, I'm one of those that's getting beat down. I'm one of those that's losing. I'm one of those that I feel like I'm always being taken from. So how does this apply to your life? When this way, rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice because the kingdom of God is coming for you. Put your hope in the coming of His kingdom. Not in anything in this world, not in any power that you have. You can actually embrace suffering with joy because His kingdom is coming in all of its fullness with the return of Christ. A day is coming. Rejoice. But what does it mean? What is the application if we find ourselves in a place of power, a place of influence. Now, when I say that, probably most of us in here say, well, that's not me, 
but it is. We don't realize it, but we, we have influence. We have social capital. We have the ability to do things and create things and, 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 and influence things more than we even realize. And so what is the application here for us? Do justice. Take up the cause of those who have no voice. Make the problems of other people your problems. Right? We need to ask, and here, here's a great question here I'd like for you to actually work through. Who in the different realms of my life is marginalized, weak, taken advantage of, or vulnerable? I've listed out some realms here. At home, in your neighborhood, at work or school, wherever you spend most of your time, in our community of Dade County. That's the work that we have to do. We have to begin to say, okay, in all of these places where I am, who falls into this category? Who, who, who doesn't matter in those places? Who are the people that are just dismissed in those places? Who are the play, people that, that are taken advantage of, that have no voice? Who are those people? And then the question, how can I live out justice in these places and in these relationships? How can I take up their cause? Let me give you an example. Whenever I'm taking the boys to school in the morning, this is my prayer for them. This is the discussion we'll often have. I'll say, kids, when you go to school today, who in your classes just doesn't matter? Who in your classes are like made fun of and, and nobody wants to be their friend and there's something about their life, maybe it's the way that they look or what they have, that just everybody just excludes them. Okay, what would it look like to use what you have, your, your uh, reputation, how people like you, what, to use that for their sake? What would that look like for you? See, that's doing justice. Kids, you can do justice right where you are. And to do justice is the way of the kingdom of God. So let me stop right there for a minute and just hear from each other. That might bring up a lot of questions. I'm hoping that challenges you, particularly maybe in the ways that you view justice. Maybe this begins to challenge a particular political view you've completely aligned yourself with. I hope it does. Let's hear from each other. What, what's happening to you as you think about Jesus' mission of justice and also us being called? Thanks. Um, I think as I just was looking at those questions in those realms, I just realized how easy it is for me or... Or, or maybe my, how should I say this? Just that I can't, sometimes I, I'm like not surrounding myself with people who are on the margins <coughs> all the time. Hmm. And there may have been points in my life where I was more surrounded. Yeah. But, but it's easy often, it's easier to surround myself with other people who aren't needy. Right. Or who, who aren't vulnerable. Yep. Um, in who are cer- like us. Certainly in that like, certainly in the like, physical sense um yeah and so i think that's just convicting to be like well maybe this requires me to change my surroundings a little bit yes right um right 
and and that takes a lot of thoughtfulness and prayer yeah. I think um and I'm just I think I need to like think about that basically. yeah yeah that's a great point Carrie if you're working through those questions and you're like I got nothing I'm blank that might indicate I've isolated my people myself I've isolated myself from people who are vulnerable who are weak I might not even notice them. They might just be invisible to me, which often happens. And so that might be a part of the real challenge here that we need to work through. Do I even see people who are in this place? Um, Hutch, I really appreciated how you mentioned, like, if you are one of the vulnerable people that like to rejoice in the gospel. Yeah. Just because I think that often I can hear things like this, and I can be like, okay, I have to do more. Yeah. And and obviously, like, our response to the good news of the gospel is eventually to, like, go out and to care for those who are marginalized. Mm-hmm. But I think, for me, one of the most compelling things about it is that we are called, like, first to rest and to be cared for by God and then, yeah. like, to go out and do that. So, yes. I just appreciated that you made that point because I think I often, especially times in my life where I have been, like, very vulnerable, I'm like, okay, to be a good Christian, to, like, check all the boxes means, like, I have to go find (coughs) someone to help. Right, yeah. When often, like, what I need is to receive, to, like, receive. And sometimes receiving is a lot harder than, like, offering help. Yes. So, anyway, I just appreciated that point of, like, the gospel is not just to be lived out through us, but it also is to be, like, accepted. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's, you know, when you, the more deeply you understand the gospel, the more deeply you understand, okay, th- there's not like some category where the poor are over here and then I'm over here. Really, the heart of justice starts with recognizing I'm poor before God. You know, I was poor, I was marginalized, I was forgotten, I was helpless, I was vulnerable, and yet what did God do? To great cost to himself, he became poor for me so that through his poverty I might become rich with the kingdom. And so it, that the personal experience of the gospel becomes the fuel for doing justice. Let me just also say this, at the risk of getting you mad, because I just feel like I should do that here. Um, I tell you what I'm really concerned about for the church in America. <clears throat> I'm really concerned that the church in America has overly identified itself with American politics. Now, I think it's done that on the right and on the left. Now, where we live in our part of the country, it's done that on the right. And here's what it does. We align ourselves with a particular worldly view of justice. Okay, we say, okay, that, that whole package, Republican, now some of this, of you, this doesn't apply to, so don't listen to this. You need to listen to the opposite. But I just said this, this over here. I guess I'm just assuming that young people are more vulnerable to that. But here in Dade County, I mean, this is red country, okay? What I think often happens is that we align ourselves here with the conservative Republican Party. And we say, that is Christian. 
Now, if what Jesus says here in his teachings do not challenge you, I would say you are being more shaped by the values of this world than you are by the kingdom of God. I should not have to choose between defending the rights of the unborn and an immigrant. I can't choose there. Right? Don't make me choose. And if I'm having to choose, I've already lost. Because the values of the kingdom of God are above any kingdom in this world. And so when we align ourselves with any worldly values, then we lose our ability to be prophetic in this world. That is to be able to speak truth to power, no matter what direction it needs to be spoken to, whether to the left or to the right or whatever other direction there is. That upsets you, let's talk after this. I'm not advocating a particular immigration policy, okay? I'm just saying, do not align the kingdom of God with a worldly view of justice, because it is above this world. We should stop here. I'm going to get myself out of here before you run me out of town. Let me pray. We can talk about this after this, but uh, worship team, go ahead and come up. Lord Jesus, we're always prone to mingling the values of the kingdom of God with the world and the culture in which we find ourselves in. And I just pray as a people that we would be more shaped by your kingdom and that your view of justice would come to shape our hearts. It would be our longing. It would be our hearts. It would be our dream. This great longing that one day, in the words of Amos, justice will roll down like a mighty river. Would that be our hope? Would we be people that are just anticipating that day?